seems that recently we've had several sermons on the uh, concern of interpersonal relations. Uh, John gave two on vanity during the holy days. Richard gave one in the book of James that had quite a bit to do with that. John Reed picked out of the three subjects he had before him the thought that we really need to consider how we treat one another. Earl Hen recently had a, a sermon about that, and I'm sure uh, knowing Harold Way, that his most recent one, I don't remember all about it, but had a great deal to do with that. And sometime before the Holy Days actually arrived, I had begun mulling over the idea of a sermon about pride. So it seems that God has moved the focus of the ministry of this organization toward this subject in one way or another. Uh, the emphasis has been, since the inception of the Church of the Great God, on renewing our relationship with God, how to go about that, preparing the bride, that we might have the right kind of intimate relationship with Him. And yet it is so important that we have the right relationship one with another. We're going to see that very shortly here. In my last sermon, I talked about the ways that God might choose to bring unity back into the church, and today I will speak about one of the greatest obstacles to that unity that we face in our everyday life. You might remember many years ago, if you're that old, when Frank Sinatra came out with what became a signature song of his, I Did It My Way. It was a classic song, one that he sings at the end of his concerts, uh, as I say, a signature type song, and there's great pride in singing that song with him. And it touched a nerve with a great number of people. It was a very appealing song. But no matter what came along, I can look back and say, I did it my way. That song sold millions. And today it even still has a great appeal because it seems that's what we want. We've done it our way, haven't we? And what do we look at today? A dying civilization with each and every person here grasping in his great pride and swelling vanity to do it his way. The advertising media makes millions of dollars promoting this theme. Burger King says, have it your way, right away. Appealing to our sense of pride and vanity and ego of wanting things our way right now. Dennis Rodman, the basketball figure, and so, uh, well, he says he's not a role model for our young people, and yet, because of the millions of dollars he makes in his spotlight in the basketball world, he is a role model. I recently saw a picture of him promoting his book, sitting at a table in Chicago, signing his autographs. He was dressed in drag, horrible looking. His book is entitled, Mad as I Wanna Be. Now there's a real role model for you, isn't it? And I think it sort of tells where we have come in our civilization. Maybe we're not all quite like Dennis Rodman. I certainly hope not. But we still have the same attitudes of mind, of self-satisfaction, of getting what we want. Babies that are three years old uh, want what they want right now, or they'll pitch a fit, and no one disciplines them for it. They're allowed to have the fit. When they get to be teen, they, teens, teens, they want to do what they want, when they want, and when they're old, they want to be taken care of the same way. I want what I want, and I want it now. And if you don't move over in traffic, 
there will be trouble. Oh, our emphasis in the church has been in our relation to God, but let's turn to Matthew 25 and see something about that, beginning in verse 34. Then shall the king say to them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry, and you gave me meat, I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. And then the righteous say, Well, when did we do these things for you? And we know the story here. Inasmuch, in verse 40, as you have done it unto the one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. Do we have time for each other? Is our time too valuable for each other? You see, the test of our relationship to God and how intimate we have become with Him is how we treat one another. He says it very, very plainly in John 13, 35, if we miss the message right here in Matthew. Let's go back to John 13. This one's been quoted many, many times, and yet it is still Scripture and is still very much the living test. John 13:35. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. We could go back to James 4. Whence come wars and fightings among you? And we'll find that pride, vanity, and ego are at the center of it. But he says the test is how we treat one another. It's easy for us to say to ourselves, Yes, I love God. I pray to God. My relationship with God has improved a great deal over the last few years as I've waked up spiritually. And yet, why then do we have trouble getting along with one another? If our relationship with God is so good, we've learned to get along so well with Him, then why are not we not able to get along with each other? Why do we still get miffed and have hurt feelings and have ridges of resentment and frustration with one another. Is our time too valuable to have patience and love and kindness for our brother, or is it not? <laughs> so pride is one of the greatest obstacles to peace and unity. And I want to pick this up at Proverbs 6, and beginning in verse 16. Proverbs 6, and verse 16. Now let's talk about the things that God hates. These six things does the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. What is the first one mentioned? A proud look. The first thing he says that he hates that is an absolute abomination to him is a proud look. And yet, when we get our little kids all dressed up, we say, oh, how proud. And so, so often we promote pride and vanity in our children and in ourselves. <laughs> then he goes and names the next six, and we're going to find that he names proud first because the other six are tied to it. A lying tongue. Why do we lie? Because our pride gets in the way and we want to look good. So we'll lie, we'll say anything sometimes, just so that we can maintain our ego and our pride and not look bad. And hands that shed innocent blood. So often pride, ego, and vanity are involved when murder occurs because we want an advantage. We want to rise above someone else. Our pride is in the way. So much so that we might even stoop to kill someone. Now we do that spiritually as well with character assassination when we talk about someone. 
People feel devastated. They almost feel like they'd like to crawl in their shoe and die sometimes after things we say about them, either to them or behind their back, which is even worse, and it gets back to them. That's murder. It's the spirit of murder. And based on pride. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. Tries to find ways to get leverage and get above someone else. We use it in the form of put-downs. That's what you see on the television set, day in and day out, with the sitcoms. Put the other person down. Stand up in pride. Make them look bad so that you look good. <laughs> Feet that be swift and running to mischief. We pride ourselves in youth with our muscles, with our intellect. And we run to do mischief with that pride. What about it on the basketball court when an athlete gets flagged by the referee? What kind of a look does he have on his face? Is it one of utter repentance and I'm so sorry I fouled that person? No, he doesn't have that look at all. 15,000 people in the stands, zero in on him, who gets called to the foul. The television cameras go on him. And you see this fellow with a real petulant, proud look on his face. What do you mean me? I didn't do that. I couldn't have fouled anyone. That was someone else did that. But he has this really proud look, and God said he despises that look. A false witness that speaks lies so that he can look good. And he that sows discord among brethren. So often the discord we see in the church has its roots, brethren, in pride. Let's see that in the next verse. Uh, Proverbs 13. <laughs> Proverbs 13 and verse 10. In the King James it says, Only by pride comes contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. In other translations it doesn't say only by pride comes contention, but it shows that pride is certainly a very central figure in contention that occurs. I think it is interesting that it says here in in the King James, only by pride comes contention. When there is an argument, pride is involved somewhere. Our egos get in the way. We want to be right. The other person we wish were, would be wrong or that they would agree with us. But we argue because we have the pride in the way. So this then becomes a major issue and sowing discord among the brethren. If we can't get along, someone's pride is in the way. Proverbs, I mean, excuse me, excuse me, um, Psalm 105. <laughs> Psalm 105, <laughs> and in, or, excuse me, Psalm 101, verse 5, I'll get it right in a minute. Who privately slanders his neighbor, him will I cut off him that has an high look and a proud heart, will not I suffer. I just will not allow it. It will be stopped. If we insist on being proud, we will not be in the kingdom of God. Because God will not allow it. He doesn't like a high look, someone who has a superior air about them. Putting on airs, we might say. Because they're from the right side of the tracks, we happen to be from the wrong side of the tracks or because we had a college education and they didn't finish high school. So we feel superior and look down our nose at them in pride. <laughs> God says he won't put up with that kind of an attitude. Maybe that's why he wants us to focus now 
on our interpersonal relationships. Maybe that's why he has inspired several of our different elders to speak along these same lines. I didn't change my subject just because I saw other people were speaking along the same lines I had planned to speak. I decided I had better speak on this subject because it appeared God was showing us we needed to focus on it. So I'm going to issue a challenge today. I don't want to waste your time, which is, I'm sure, you're proud of, nor do I want to waste money over nothing. I issue a challenge to you and to me today to change our way of thinking. As we examine this subject, let's be soft in our approach. Let's be a bit humble and analyze our own selves and see if we still have some vestiges of pride left, or if perhaps we've completely gotten rid of it and are totally humble. I really rather doubt that, so I think this applies to all of us. What broke unity, first of all, and harmony in the universe? The pride of Satan the devil. Or is the cherub at the time, before he had pride and vanity and ego, but he began to realize things that he was as good as God. Matter of fact, he was better than God, and so rebelled, and in his pride was cast down. God will not put up with it. Now, he is patiently waiting at this point for Satan to do his number on mankind, and then God is going to come down in his sovereignty and straighten it out. He has given us the opportunity today to get rid of this attitude that Satan has and turn to him in true humility. Let's notice it uh, very quickly again in Psalm 21 and verse 4. He asks life of you, and you gave it him, even length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Did I quote that? I may have written that down wrong. I guess I wrote it down wrong. That doesn't matter. Let's go on. Let's go to chapter 16 and verse 5. He that puts not out his money to usury, nor takes reward against the innocent, he that does these things shall never be moved. I got two in a row there that I messed up. I'm going to have to swallow some pride and admit I made a mistake here and go on. But the ones I intended to read said that they are haughty and proud and arrogant, and these are sin, and the proud heart will not go unpunished. Those are the ones I was looking for, and I somehow got those down. Maybe I was supposed to be in Proverbs. I bet I was. But that's what they said anyway. Uh, let's go to Luke 1. I think I got this one right. I hope so. Luke 1 and verse 51. He has showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. God as a Savior is going to scatter whatever pride might be there. But it's interesting that he says, I, I like the expression, the imagination of their hearts. We sit and we focus on ourselves so often of what we think we are or can be or how important we are or how things relate to us. By nature, we are very self-centered from the time we are little children wanting our bellies filled or our diapers changed until we grow old. We are concerned about how we feel, about what people think of us about whether we're full or empty or cold or hot, whether we look good or look bad, 
And in our growing up years, we spend a great deal of time in the mirror examining ourselves to see whether we are truly handsome or beautiful or not. For it afflicts us from the time that we are very, very small until we are very old. And then sometimes we have the pride of old age, the pride of grandchildren, the pride of great-grandchildren, the pride of the things that we have done and like to tell stories about those things. Not that it's wrong to tell stories, not that it's wrong to relate one to another in our lives, but what I want to point out is that our focus tends to be on ourselves and our things. Ever notice in a conversation how someone is talking about their story and unless they're a really, really good storyteller, we're sitting there thinking about how we are going to tell the next story. We're not concerned as much about their story as we are our own. My wife kind of looks at me funny because I get together with hunting buddies once in a while and we decide we have to tell hunting stories <laughs> and it's can you top this time. Of course, we never exaggerate anything in our pride to make ourselves look bigger, bolder, and stronger than anyone else. I realize that. So when you put your little look away and tuck it away, I don't need that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I certainly do need it. We all do because it is innate within every one of us. And that's the reason I bring that up. She looks at me that way and I understand exactly what she means because we all walk in the pride of life, don't we, brethren? The popular psychology of today is that if someone has low self-esteem, they need to read lots and lots of self-help books to raise their self-esteem. That's the buzzword. Don't have low self-esteem. If you do, read my book and I will pump you full of air and you will have high self-esteem and you will be able to run over other people. That's basically what psychology is all about today. And yet, we run into someone who has a high self-esteem and they become obnoxious and unbearable, don't they? Because they have high self-esteem, they want to lord it over everyone else. Or perhaps they have inferior feelings of inferiority and low self-esteem and therefore they react in a superior way to appear to have great confidence. We have many, many ways of deluding ourselves into thinking we are what we want to be. But what does God say about self-esteem? Let's go to Philippians 2. Philippians 2. I got another one right. I'm on a roll here. Uh, beginning in verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now he's writing to a church congregation here and says, Be of one accord and one mind. And yet I hear stories from different groups across the country where so-and-so is having a tip with so-and-so, and then on the other side of the country, so-and-so is having a tip with so-and-so, and then I might have a tip with someone myself. And you begin to realize, you know, we don't get along as well yet as we ought to. Something's wrong here. We haven't overcome something yet. And Paul was grappling with the same problem with the Philippians here. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, pride, ego. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now there is a mouthful. What a challenge that is. To actually esteem others better than yourself. To consider their feelings and their needs, their wants, their desires, higher than your own. Can you argue with someone when you look up to him? 
and esteem his feelings as important or more so than your own? No, you're going to argue when you think his opinion is inferior to your own, whatever the subject might be. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Yes, we have to mind our own lives and take care of our living and so on, but every man also on the things of others. Are we sensitive to the needs and feelings of others? Or do we overpower them and run over them in our comments and emotions? It's so easy to do. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. <laughs> There's where the esteem comes in as we draw close to God and recognize that we are to become God, but that isn't esteem for self, that isn't self-esteem, that's esteeming God is high over everything, and us trying to become like Him. But made Himself of no reputation. We worry about our reputation, don't we? Well, we should be concerned about the reputation we might have toward evil, but He was willing to say, I am nothing. I am a worm like anyone else. I'm not special. And took upon Him the form of a servant. He didn't live on the hill on the other on the, on the good side of the tracks and look down on the rest of the world. He hobnobbed with the publicans and sinners. I say hobnob, maybe that's the wrong word. He related to them. He had difficulties with the Pharisees who were proud because God resists the proud and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the stake. That was the most ignominious form of death you could take, and yet he was willing to do it. How many of us are willing to even change our opinion or, or agree with someone else when our opinion might be different than theirs? We have difficulty with that. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him because of that tremendous humility he showed, and given him a name which is above every name, as the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. He who abased himself, God has exalted. And he abased himself more than any man, because he was God, and yet he didn't take upon himself as being anything any greater than anyone around him. Wherefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. See why we should fear and tremble? When our ego and vanity and pride causes us to have a contention, an argument, a problem with someone else, for it is God which works in you both the will and the do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and disputing. These things come up. Well, where are we going to meet in this little area? Well, someone says we should meet here. Someone else says we should meet here. So there's an argument over it. Well, who was placed in charge? Well, let them make the decision. Then why worry about it? There are different administrations. There are different ways to skin cats. I've seen it done both ways. From the head and from the tail. And from the middle, for that matter. There are different ways of doing it. What makes your way better? Because it's your way? Well, perhaps that's the only logical reason you have an argument is because your way is different and your way is your way. And their way is their way and therefore yours must be superior. That is not humility. We argue about many, many things. That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. 
we have a long way to go sometimes with our personal relationships, with our marriages, with our children, with each other as brothers and sisters in the church, because we have difficulty getting along. And that's why God has made this the acid test. We have to overcome these problems and learn to get along in love and camaraderie, closeness, and fellowship. I've seen in my many years, I think many years, I mean, <laughs> not many compared to the creation of Earth or how, how long Noah lived, but I began to feel old anyway. But I've been in the church well over 40 years now. And over those years, I've seen arguments about almost anything you can name. And people who get to the place, they won't even speak with one another in the same congregation as brothers together. Or if they do speak, it's a grunt, and they look down, and they have a proud look on their face. I will not bow before that person. What happened to the willingness to wash feet at Passover? Yes, we don't have a problem, really, washing feet at Passover, because that's expected, and that's a formal ceremony that we do every year. It's biblical, so we would do it. I don't know. I've... I don't think I've ever washed the feet of anyone whom I truly despised. That might be a little harder, I don't know. But you still do it because that's what we're doing. But what about on October 13th or January 16th? We maintain that foot-washing attitude year-round toward all of our brethren. What happens to patience and love and long-suffering and kindness? What, how do you go before God? I know I go before God so frequently asking for patience and mercy and forgiveness because of my sins and pride and ego and vanity and all the things that I am, lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, all of these things that we still have. I go before God and plead for mercy and forgiveness. And I suspect that you do too if you're converted in God's church. And yet, will we extend to our brother who has offended us that same patience and mercy, long-suffering, forgiveness and kindness? Or will we harbor a ridge of animosity, jealousy, envy? No. Can we expect God to give us what we will not give our brother? I think that flies in the face of a lot of scriptures. This is a serious matter we're discussing here. This is, this is eternal judgment we're talking about, this matter of pride and ego and whether or not we are willing to swallow it and divest it from our personalities. And it's not something that we will overcome today in one day. It's something I would like to bring to our attention, as it has been being brought to our attention in several sermons, emphasize it a bit, that we might truly recognize maybe it's partly my fault, not always the other guy's fault. And that we perhaps need to be humble ourselves and be willing to apologize and be willing to give way before the other person's opinion. Sure, it's your opinion and you think it's right. If you didn't think it was right, you'd change it and have a different opinion. And if his differs from yours, it's only automatic in the human frame that we think that our opinion is right and his is wrong because it's not ours. That makes sense, doesn't it? Finally, it does. Spiritually, it doesn't as we see in these scriptures. Now let's go on to uh, Romans 12. Romans 12. Verse 3. For I say through the grace given to me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think soberly according 
according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Don't think more highly of ourselves. Chapter 11 and verse 20 of Romans. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Be not high-minded, be not egocentric, be not proud, but fear.
was a perfect husband in the Old Testament, and Israel argued with him constantly. Israel would not submit to Jesus Christ and his ways. And we find today that we, preparing to be the brides of Christ, have extreme difficulty submitting to and being of a ready mind to do the will of our prospective groom. We are yet carnal. We are so proud that we won't, it won't submit to God. Do we put the physical life ahead of God, our continued existence? Are we so proud of being here and being alive that we can't trust God for healing? Can he heal us? Yes, I think we would all say he can heal us. Will he heal us? He says it's according to our faith. Will he find any faith is the question he asks at the end time. Will there be any? If he's going to find any, it should be among us. Are we willing to put our, hand, our lives in the hands of God and trust his sovereignty as to whether we live or die? We can say that. We can have a form of godliness. But is it form only? What about when we have cancer? Do we run to the nearest chemo lab? Or do we run to the nearest minister and get anointed with oil? And trust God. Because he said... Whether I live, or Paul said, whether I live or whether I die, I belong to God. Do we really believe, brethren, in God? Do we really have that kind of faith that we can trust Him with our lives? Or at the moment we see trouble ahead, do we turn to another answer? How that must make Him feel ill at times. To see us who claim to be Christian, who claim to be the very chosen of God, and yet we don't trust Him with our health. We don't trust Him with our wealth. We don't trust Him with a lot of things, and yet we give Him lip service. That is scary to, to uh, contemplate it in those terms, isn't it? And yet He said we would be so self-trusting and so self-trusting in the system in the end time that He would be hard-pressed to find faith on the earth. We have all kinds of pride. We get our feelings hurt. We get miffed. We feel slighted or ignored. That happens to all of us. Maybe we're too centered on ourselves sometimes and our own self-importance rather than not letting our right hand know what our left hand is doing. If we were so busy taking care of other need, people's needs and their sensitivities and whether or not they are taken care of and spoken to and smiled at, maybe we wouldn't really notice so much whether someone else was ignoring us or smiling at us because we'd be so busy giving smiles we wouldn't notice whether we were getting any. And yet if someone seems to ignore us, you know, maybe they had a bunion that was bothering them. We don't know. Maybe they were frowning, not at us. Maybe they were frowning at their bunion. But we saw it, and we thought that frown was meant for us. You never know what's hurting someone. Maybe they just had a death in their family back home, and they're all frustrated, and yet we take it personally. There can be so many, many things. But we're so centered on ourselves, we're not concerned about their bunion or who died. Maybe we should walk up and say, can I help? You know, you look upset. Are you upset at me? Or do I need to pray for you about something? Maybe just leave the me out of it entirely. Say, you look upset. How can I help? We have pride of intellect. And yet, the race is not to the swift. It's not to the smart. Time and chance happen to them all. It doesn't. Don't they? Habakkuk 
thinking about passing on probably that one, but have so few chances to turn to Habakkuk or Habakkuk or however you want to say it, but I think I'll go back there anyway. Chapter 2, verse 5. Yea, also, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, neither keeps at home, who enlarges his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathers to him all nations, and heaps unto him all people. Some people's pride reaches to the point that they would just love to rule the entire world. Everything in it. Now, we think we don't, but wait till the kids down the block start arguing with your kids. Some of you ladies who don't think you want to rule the world, just wait. You want to rule the block, don't you? You want to make sure those other kids get taken care of. You want to rule the neighbor's dog, that's for sure, so he doesn't come and bark and mess in your yard. Now, we have these desires for control. But a proud man. Cannot all these take up a parable against him and taunting proverb against him and say, Woe to him that increases that which is not his? How long? And to him that lays himself with thick clay, shall I not rise up suddenly that shall bite you and awake that shall vex you and you shall be for booty unto them? Because you have spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil you because of men's blood and for the violence of the land of the city and of all that dwell therein. Woe to him that covets an evil covetousness to his house from the power of evil. <laughs> we love to set our house up high. We love to think well of ourselves. We'd like to be promoted. I remember uh, I was ordained into the ministry when I was barely 22. And by age 24 or 25, I can remember thinking, I wonder why I'm not a district superintendent yet. Now it double that age, I can easily see why I wasn't district superintendent by the age I was 24 or 25. But what ego? What vanity? What pride? <laughs> Someone who's barely shaving good should think that he should be ruling over many, many churches. That's long ago. I don't have any of that anymore. I know. I'm sure. I've done some of it, hopefully. <laughs> but it will be in us until the day that we are changed. We are told to change as much as we can now. Right of the young man is in his physical prowess, or the young lady in her physical beauty. I'm a man too. Let's turn to Psalm 75 very quickly here. Psalm 75. And verse 6. For promotion comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. It comes from the north. Come and say 
to you, give this man place, and you begin with Jane to take the Lord's room. Well, listen, wait a minute. Verse 8, when you are bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than you be bidden of him. And he that bade you come and say to you, give this man place, and you begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when you are bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room. Do we try to find the lowest chair in the hall and say, I'll sit here. I won't sit there and try to make myself to be something important within the church. I'm here to serve. I'm here to give of my personality, to give of my knowledge, to give of myself. To let my light shine. That when he that bade you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then shall you have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with you. For whosoever exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. It's just an absolute law that God has set. He will exalt the humble. Those who try to exalt themselves will be abased. It's going to happen to this whole world, isn't it? Before long, God is going to show who rules and who does not rule. And Dennis Rodman is going to be a real candidate for some humility. He's going to be as good as he can be. He's going to survive. He's not going to be as bad as he want to be. Sovereignty of God is the issue here, and we've been hearing a lot about that, and you cannot preach without talking about the sovereignty of God in some form or fashion. He called us. He gave us positions. He gave us gifts. And yet Paul said some love to have the preeminence, didn't he? Some like to put themselves forward. Let's be understanding of one another, brethren. There are different administrations. Some teach, some heal, some help. No one has it all. Not one man has it all. Jesus Christ is the only one that ever did. John the Baptist was the most man, righteous man who ever lived other than Christ, at least up until the time the four Gospels were written. And I seriously doubt that anyone has been more righteous than John the Baptist since then. <laughs> doesn't say, because the Bible was written then, and there's been a lot of history since then. But I strongly suspect that none of us have come up to the mark of John the Baptist. We always want to be validated as people, don't we? We try to validate ourselves by pushing ourselves forward in the minds of others. We might have preeminence in terms of what we are saying, or our ideas, or our doctrinal understanding, or whatever it might be. We like to have the biggest story, the best story, the most exciting adventure, whatever. But those are the wrong marks for validation. What should we be validated by as a human being, as a Christian? We should be validated by understanding, by patience, by compassion on others. We're of the same frame that we are. To judge them gently and kindly and lovingly because God says that as we judge, so shall we be judged. Is there someone on this earth, someone on this planet, that you have a grudge against, against a resentment for? Anyone. A mate, a child, a brother in the church, an employee, an employer, a minister? Is there someone you resent or envious of or jealous of? <laughs> How do you judge that person? How do you feel toward that person? Are you truly willing to forgive that individual and let it go? Put it behind you? If you aren't, God says he will not put 
your sins behind you either. You're kidding yourself if you hold to resentment against someone else and don't repent of it. Because God says, I won't forgive you either. Those are pretty serious words. You hear people say, well, I had my pride. Yes, you do have your pride. But is that anything to be proud of? No. I'm poor. Proud of it. I'm uneducated. Proud of it. I'm educated and proud of it. Well, we find a way to be proud no matter what, don't we? Some people even have the pride of being the greatest sinners. And they trade on that for pity. Pity of others. Self-pity. Oh, I'm such a sinner, I can never be forgiven. That's just pride and vanity. That's just ego, brethren. Why be proud about having been the worst sinner? But it's a form some people take. God says he forgives if you repent. So you better forgive yourself. You better forgive others. Don't wallow in that self-pity. It won't get you anywhere. And it won't even really get you sympathy or pity from anyone else. They'll, be, they'll think, oh, yuck. They don't like that attitude. Our dog, <laughs> once in a while, as you forget to feed him, he'll come and put his head on your lap. And he gets this real pitiful look on his face as he white eyes you. And he'll look up and say, like he wants something to eat. Poor pitiful me. I've been left out. Come somebody have pity and compassion on me. And we started saying that to each other around here. When, they, when one of us wants a pity party and are really feeling bad about ourselves, we look at each other and say, oh, ooh, ooh, ooh. And it's kind of hard not to smile and laugh at yourself when you realize that uh, your little ego, your little pride, your little desire for self-centeredness and, and self-pity has come upon you and needs to be gotten rid of. What about God? What did he say when he had done the most fantastic thing that so far has ever been done? Created the heavens and the earth. Made man. Did he stand up and just bust the buttons off his shirt and say, Oh, I'm so proud of what I've done. No. He looked at what he had done and said, It is good. It's not wrong to evaluate something as being good, but he didn't have an attitude of pride. What about Christ, who had just concluded the perfect life? It lived as God said, never sinning. What did God say? I am so proud of you. No, he did not. He said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He was well pleased with Christ, but he wasn't just so proud of what he had accomplished. Pride is not an attribute of God. We find in the Bible that, he, that Paul said, we should not compare ourselves among ourselves, for it is not wise. <clears throat> what happens when we compare ourselves among ourselves? When you look at someone else and you begin making those inevitable comparisons, it seems, in our minds, what do we come up with? Well, that person is either better, and your pride is wounded in your estimation, what does that breed? Jealousy and envy. You look at that person, you think, well, they're more handsome than I am, they're smarter than I am, they're wealthier than I am. Uh, they got this, they have that. We judge them superior to ourselves in that sense. 
That breeds jealousy and envy, not godly attributes. Or we look at someone and they look less educated. They look less intelligent. They're certainly uglier. What does that breed? Superiority, arrogance, looking down your nose. See, no matter which way you go, when you make a comparison with someone else, you're creating problems. Brethren, we only count one each. No one is half a person, and no, no one is one and a half people. Sometimes we act that way, don't we? As if we're at least half again as good as you are. But we all put our pants on or our skirts on. I guess you put your skirt on two legs at a time. I never tried that. Maybe Dennis Rodman could tell me. But to Christ, we're all worms. Our maggots will be transformed into flies or butterflies. You know, we're embryo. We are gods in the embryo state. <clears throat> we shouldn't look at ourselves in a prideful way whatsoever. Self-righteousness and pride are almost synonyms. I, I see a difference between self-righteousness and pride. When we are self-righteous, self-right, I am right, that's what self-righteousness is, it is. The self-righteous person doesn't even see any wrong in himself. His attitude's righteous, his actions are righteous, he knows better than anyone else, his opinion is always right. You ever meet anyone like that? I don't mean in the mirror, I mean someone else like that. Who always feels that they have to be right. Their opinion is always right. They can't back off, can't apologize. I've known people that just will not apologize for any reason. They will not swallow that pride. Maybe they don't see anything wrong in themselves. That's what self-righteous is. That's why it's been said many times. A self-righteous person doesn't recognize self-righteousness. How could they be wrong? In pride, you may see the wrong, but not be willing to admit it. Maybe not to yourself, and certainly not to someone else. So pride, perhaps, is easier for us to recognize in ourselves and self-righteousness is, but it still has to be gotten rid of in any case. <clears throat> we want to be right. We will go to great lengths to show that we are right, as we saw there in Proverbs. But it leads to lying, even killing, to show that we are right, that our opinion is right. Proverbs 21.2 says, and I won't turn back to it for sake of time, that our ways seem right, but God ponders the heart. He looks at the real motivations beneath it. Sure, our way seems right to us, brethren. If it didn't seem right, we'd change it. Maybe we need, we need to examine it sometimes and see. Matthew 5, verse 39. Matthew 5 and verse 39. I say to you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If any man will sue you with the law, take away your coat, let him have your cloak also. And whosoever shall compel you to go a mile, go with him too. To him that asks you, for him that would borrow of you, turn you not away. Those are nice sounding things. But I'll tell you, in practice it's hard. When someone comes up to you, let's say after services, and they make some real snotty, nasty, catty comment about you. Isn't it really hard to turn the other cheek? They won't, you know, lay some on this one too. 
And I don't mean in a proud way where you just flip it around there and say, okay, but I mean humbly, gently, submitting to that other person. <laughs> it's really hard to say, you know, you're probably right about that. <laughs> I really am that way. I'm working on it. What does that do? That pours coals of fire on their head, doesn't it? Because you are not being proud. You are willing to say, well, yeah, I'm sorry, you got the right guy. Love your enemies, he says. Verse 44. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. It's so easy to lay on our bed and plan evil and think evil thoughts and frustration frustration about what we'll say to that person next and I'll get them back. Vengeance is mine, says God. We need to get on our knees and pray for that person. These are some hard sayings here in Matthew 5. Where does it say pride comes before a fall? Oh, we, we raise ourselves up in pride and we say something stupid and later on we really feel bad about it. We blew it again. What about Matthew 18, brethren? We quote it frequently. When do we quote it? Generally, when somebody has something against us and they talk to someone else about us rather than coming to us is when it comes to mind. Very rarely does Matthew 18 seem to come to mind when someone, when we offend someone else. Or when they have done something against us, what's the average reaction? The average reaction is to tell our best friend about how bad they treated us. Or how badly, to use correct English. But do we really gird up our loins and go before that person and say, No, you really made me feel bad, and here's why. And I just wanted to bring it to your attention because I love you and I don't want to be at odds with you and I want to soft settle this so we can be truly brothers close together. That is a tough thing to do. It's easy to quote it at someone else. But it's really hard to suck it up and go do it before them. But that's what God tells us to do. Go to your brother alone. Maybe after much prayer and even fasting. Until your true desire is to gain that brother, not point out their error. And that so often is the case when we do this in the wrong attitude. We might even say, well, I'll go to that person and I'll straighten them out. But our attitude is not to go and gain that brother as a true friend. It's to right a wrong that was perpetrated against us because it hurt our pride. But when you do, Matthew 18, I didn't say if you do, but when we do, Matthew 18, let's be sure we go with the right attitude, as is delineated in the scripture, as opposed to just trying to save our own face. <coughs> it required wisdom to know when to turn the other cheek, and when to be angry and send not. Or to answer a fool according to his folly, or not answer a fool according to his folly. It depends on which fool it is and what that person needs. But you see, it, it puts the impetus and the responsibility upon you and me to understand why that person is being foolish and whether or not an answer will help that person overcome his foolishness or whether an answer would let him continue in his foolishness. Our attitude should be to help that person, not put him down as a fool. Why the difference there? That's where wisdom comes in. We must pray to God 
God for wisdom to know how to handle people. That is going to be our job. Maybe that's why God is causing such an emphasis on interpersonal relationships in the church right now. It's because he realizes we have begun, at least, to get our attitude straightened out toward him. But then when we run the acid test about how well we get along with each other, it shows we still have some room to grow, some room to improve. And I don't mean to be corrective today and trying to straighten everybody out. I'm talking to me, too. And maybe the reason I brought this up is because I needed it. We all do. But we need to understand these scriptures because it is imperative to our salvation. But what about someone who has so-called low self-esteem? They have no confidence. They have no strength to do anything. That's a, I, I think we've all felt inferior. We all feel less than what we ought to be most of the time. I know I do. Uh, just you know, why me and why am I here and what am I doing? Um, we all have our doubts and our fears and our insecurities because we recognize that we fall short of the mark. It's just in us, all of us. But what about it? Sometimes it paralyzes us to the point that we can't do anything because of this so-called low self-esteem. And I would say maybe we should phrase it confidence. Not confidence in ourselves. And this needs to start young with our children. When they do well, we don't say, oh, you're so good, you're such a wonderful child, and pump their pride up but when they do something well, or they accomplish a task and finish the task, we could say, I am well pleased with you. You did well. And they learn then to have confidence in doing things, but it's the right attitude as opposed to the pride and ego. And naturally, that's going to come, and we have to battle it the best we can. But the more we can nip it in the bud when our children are small, the easier it will be as we grow older to fight it back and to truly be humble. And it comes with much fasting and much prayer. Now let's go to 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7. For God has not given us the spirit of fear or lack of confidence. We shouldn't be fearful and timid. God doesn't like those who are timid and shrink back, but those who move forward. He says, lift up. Uh, the, the weak knees and the feeble hands, I think it is in, in Hebrews 12 there. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. For we recognize that we have great abilities as human beings. God has given us different gifts just by genetics and by environment so that we can do things, but we need to recognize what is the source of our power? What is the source of the love that we might show one to another? That it comes from God who gave us these emotions. And we want to stay away from Satan who tends to twist and rest our emotions to his purposes to be hurtful and harmful rather than godly. So we should be praying and fasting that God would give us truly humble, meek attitudes so that we can be willing to give to the other person and to their attitudes instead of having to have our way right away. What would it be like, brethren, if we could finally come to that point where a husband would look at his wife and a decision is coming up, he would truly consider doing it her way. He would consider her opinions and her feelings and desires in the matter. And 
put it in such a way as they discuss it so that she feels her opinion is really considered, regardless of what the decision might be. Even if he does it differently than she desired, at least she feels that she was listened to. How much more would she love and respect him for that? And how about the wife? Who could finally come to the point where she said, well, honey, I really feel differently, but since that's your decision, I'll do my level best to skin the cat your way. I'll start at the head instead of the tail where I wanted to. Or whatever, I'm a silly little thing, but we use that expression. More than one way to skin the cat. Whatever the subject might be, honey, I'll do it your way. That would be news to some guy's ears, wouldn't it? Instead of being opposed at every turn? <laughs> Let's use Jesus Christ as an example. Matthew 26. <laughs> Matthew 26. And verse 39. Christ was about to die. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I really don't want to die. I really would prefer you preserve my life. I really wish you'd make a different decision. Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. How humble. How abased can you get? His very life was on the line. And yet he said, Father, this isn't what I want. I don't want to die this horrible, painful, ignominious death. But whatever your will is, I am willing. What an incredible attitude for us to consider. With this attitude, would we get more healings? Would we get more answers to prayers? If we truly turned our lives over to God and says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. We get answers to prayers, but I think the door would be open to many, many more prayers if we would truly recognize the sovereignty of God in our lives. And whatever he promises, we would say, I will do, Father, regardless of the cost. Turn very quickly to Psalm 138 and verse 6. <laughs> Psalm 138, verse 6. Though the Lord be high, yet has he respect to the lowly, but the proud he knows afar off. He can see you coming. Do you see pride in someone when they come down the street? Maybe they're several blocks away, but boy, do they swagger and act like they just own the world. God can see our attitudes a long ways off, brethren. He sees it coming down the street, but he looks to the lowly. Let's conclude this with this thought. Each morning, before we go, as we go before God, before we start our day, what about if we just got on our knees and said, Father, help me do it your way. Help me act toward people the way you would react toward people. With the mercy, the love, the kindness, the consideration. Then how would we interact with people? Would we act with patience and love and concern? 
I just cannot picture some Christ flipping somebody off in traffic because he happened not to let them go first, or him go first. I can't picture Jesus Christ reacting to people the way we sometimes do. Maybe if we get on our knees each morning and say, Father, help me do it your way, <clears throat> at the end of each day, we could get on our knees again and say, Father, I did it your 